Welcome to the program. This is the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Ryan, and this is the podcast for all of you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, which is a non-profit education and advocacy group that brings together like-minded people working to shape our city. Our guest today is a passionate community member who is building up Edmonton. Let's get into her impressive experience. Morgan Kunitz is a local business owner, performer, director, community advocate, and a lover of all things Edmonton. When she isn't busy building up her family retail business, Kunitz Shoes, she spends her time producing shows and building a community on her street and with her family in Inglewood. A graduate of Grant McEwen's theater arts program, Morgan's theater experience gave her a passion for trying new things and a making it work mentality. Whether it's stocking her little free pantry or planting rogue flower pots along bike lanes, Morgan shows her kids what it means to live in a vibrant community and how to make the block a better place through incremental small changes. There's a few things that we talk about in the episode that uh, we wanted to find before we get into it. The first is Heritage Mall. So uh, Morgan and myself and Mariah kind of gushed about the um, southwest area in the episode there, but Heritage Mall is where uh, Century Park redevelopment currently is. So it was a giant mall that got torn down. The major anchors were Walmart and the Bay, and then Walmart moved out to South Edmonton in common so heritage mall ended up dying because of that uh, anchor tenant leaving um, it was purchased and it's redeveloping still um, as a transit oriented development it's it's been fairly slow to completely build out but it is seemingly starting to ramp up again now uh, fun fact i actually applied to work for the planning company um, that designed and planned century park because it was somewhat groundbreaking i grew up in the area and I did not get hired, which pains me to say, but it is a cool, it is a cool redevelopment. It was one of the first of its kind, especially in a suburban context in Edmonton. Um, but Heritage Mall is what was there before RIP. Second thing is uh, we talked about a caragana. It's basically a bushy, dense shrub. It's actually really cool. It can grow up to 10 feet. It's a great hedge because it's fairly dense. So it acts as a good privacy screen. Um, so it's a good edge uh, landscape. Did you learn about that from your brother? <laughs> I learned about it from the internet page that I'm staring at right now. But yes, I, uh, I did learn that from uh, my brother. Yes. <laughs> For all those who don't know Ryan's brother, he is a landscape architect. Yes. Yeah, that's right. He just got his stamp actually too. So he's officially a landscape architect. Shout out to Kevin. And yeah, he teaches me almost everything I know about plants. Mm, congrats, Kevin. All right. The last thing that we're going to define for you before we get into today's episode is what a digital main street is. If you're not in the small business world, you may not have heard about it before. It is a program designed to support small businesses in Alberta with their digital transformation because of COVID. Uh, it was created by BizLink, an Alberta-based nonprofit helping entrepreneurs. So it helps you to create your online store. It trains you how to manage it. And it helps with the marketing of the store as well. And it's a partnership with the U of A uh, and the business students. So the business students help workshop the whole program with you. Uh, and I know a few people who have gone through it and had a really positive experience. So hats off to BizLink and to the U of A. I did not know what a digital main street was. So thank you for defining that. Um, I'm wondering, did, uh, did you ever use it for any of the small businesses you're involved with? Yeah, so my family's store uh, has used it. Both of our businesses did not have online great online presence beforehand. They had social media, but neither had a good websites at all. Uh, so the one store uh, we have is a boutique, and I helped to create that. And we used the students to help with the SEO, which is really great. Uh, and then the other one is a tanning salon, and so to book. Uh, a tanning appointment or a spray tan appointment or any of that it was way above my experience with websites. So a U of A student is helping with that too, uh, which has really been really, really great. So thanks, uh, thanks to them. Shout out to them. All right, let's get into today's episode with Morgan. Hi, everyone. We have a really special guest today. She is a community builder, and we are so grateful and thankful to have her on today. So our episode will be a little bit different than it is from usual. It's not a technical episode. It's really about the community and the community that Edmontonians are building. So let's dive into who we have today. We have Morgan Kunek. 
Thoughts. Thanks so much for being with us today, Morgan. So excited to be here. Thank you, Maria. So um, I came across you from one of our board members, Sandy. I'm so grateful for her for introducing us. But actually, we have kind of had a meet cute before. My family business uh, previously was in your family business's block. We were both in the Saddleback area, uh, which is really random and exciting, at least for me. Yeah, oh, for sure. The Saddleback Rotors. The Saddleback Rotors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you have two locations, is that correct? Yeah, we have the uh, Southside Saddleback Road location, and we've been in that area since 1981. We started in Heritage Mall, um, if you are old enough, everybody, to remember that. And then we also have a location now in the West End, which is our previous Jasper Ave location that we moved out there in the Stony Plain Road corridor area. And our online store, most importantly, we do have a third store. It does operate like a third location virtually and across Canada, kunitshoes.ca. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't work in retail, an online presence is just as much work as a physical presence. And as expensive to operate. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Um, Okay, so let's get into a bit of your info story. Um, From my understanding, you live in a lot in Inglewood, which is one of my favorite neighborhoods, and you have a heritage home with a garden suite. Is that correct? We do. Yeah, our house was born born in 19... born? Built? In 1912, it was birthed. And uh, my husband moved in in, I believe, 2002. It needed a lot of work. So we, when I met him, um, he was very clear that the house came with him. So I learned very slowly to love our heritage home. Um, but I do love our neighborhood. You know, Inglewood is the best. It's centrally located, just a little off of downtown, very close to all the amenities that 124th Street has to offer. And it's just an incredible community. So I grew up on the south side in Millwoods as a newer developing community. Uh, So we were really in the suburbs. Like that was like really far south back in the day. Now Edmonton just, I don't even know how far it goes. I haven't been that far south in a long time. And I left Edmonton for a decade and lived in Europe, uh, in Germany and in Montreal and then Toronto And I said I wouldn't move back to Edmonton until the LRT went to our sell side store. I wouldn't come back into the family business until that point was reached. So it opened in May of 2009, I think, and I moved home that June. So having seen other cities and what they're capable of and vibrant communities and the European standard for what a city can be, and then moving back to Edmonton and trying to kind of like see bring some of that and what I learned there back to our city. And then the preservation of heritage homes. I mean, when you're in Europe, everything is old and amazing and beautiful. Um, So I was very idealistic in like that we could save this house. Um, Knowing what I know now, people always ask me for advice when they're about to fix up their home because most people in Inglewood either live in an infill or a heritage home. There's there's nothing really in between. We always are just talking about our houses <laughs> every day, all day. And so people will ask us, what should we do? What would you recommend? And I have to be honest that it is a very expensive and very stressful and very lengthy process to do. Now that we're on the flip side of it, I do love our home and I'm so glad we were able to save it. But I think that people do need to understand when they get upset that a home is torn down, that a lot of these houses are not salvageable. And the cost is, it's not even just the same as building a new house. It's more So I definitely support infill Uh, all across the street for me. I had, we had empty derelict homes, a lot of criminal activity, people squatting in homes. And it was just a a huge block of no community happening. And now it's like a row of seven infill houses. Some of them are duplexes. They're multiplying, but (laughs) they started out housing two people per skinny lot. So, you know, four when they'd split the doubles and now they're, they have children and that whole side of the street is like busier than our side of the street. So I love the idea of urban densification and being able to have more people living in a smaller area. We were jealous of that side of the street. So we started the garden suite, people on the half block, alley people. I don't know what we're going to call them, but I'm, I, I envision a whole row of row houses on the alley side. And maybe they'll have their own block parties on the alley. Right. And then you'll get invited to those. I hope so, right? <laughs> that would be so awesome. Uh, I think Edmonton's really lucky. A few of our current city councillors are very passionate about garden suites, uh, especially shout out to Councillor Salvador, who started 
uh, Yeg Garden Suite. So very happy to have her. There was a couple things that you said there that I wanted to pull on a little bit more. You didn't want to come back to Edmonton until the LRT made its way down to the south side. What was so important about the LRT to you? So having lived with no car in Europe, I did drive in Europe, but I didn't have my own car. Drove for work. And just you you wouldn't drive anywhere if you didn't have to. You would take the train, you would take public transit because it is faster and cheaper and better and relaxing. And you have high-speed Wi-Fi while you're drinking your German beer on the train that's going 350 kilometers an hour. So that was the standard that I was coming from. And then even having lived in Montreal and Toronto, again, a carless person, I, I had always had a car in Edmonton. I had never really took transit except for going to school you know, as a kid, um, but I wasn't really like a a very heavy transit user outside of that and just realizing that there are places where you can live without a car and hoping that when I moved to Edmonton I knew I would need a car but that there could be an element of not driving all the time in my life and so I think first of all living slightly more central than Mill Woods when I came back helped so I moved downtown first of all and then my husband luckily moved lived central and then we decided that he wanted to have no car there is a reality that Edmonton is a car city you know we as much as we want to have more transit and super important we we live in a car focused city but we live with one car and then we have really nice bikes we have all the bikes we spend <laughs> Not as much as a car. We spent a lot of money on bikes. And so being able to know that my kids can get around to all their activities, they're little still, but once they're able to take transit by themselves, they're not going to be relying on me um, to drive them everywhere. We spent so much time in the car living in Mill Woods, getting around, you know, it's a big burden on my parents, not to mention the environmental cost and that kind of thing. So I felt that if the LRT went south side, it would give that option. And it did. And I was able to really not be as reliant on my car. And I still all summer ride my bike between this or to both stores and don't use the car. This car is pretty much just for picking up the kids and going on road trips and things like that. I love it. I, uh, I also used to live in Mill Woods. And I love that area but it is very car centric you can't you can't really get around without it hopefully this new line will help those areas (laughs) but yeah I remember that wasn't my reality uh it was either a bike or a car um and when I was younger my bike was not as awesome it was like I got it from a police auction I think it was like 30 bucks (laughs) that's what my husband does he gets his bike stolen all the time so he's only allowed like a certain threshold for his bikes he's allowed very inexpensive bikes (laughs) I also grew up uh, just off Saddleback Road, so um, I want to be part of this conversation too. My parents actually still live in that house, and I do remember Heritage Mall. It's where I went and spent all my allowance on hockey cards. Um, <laughs> I almost kind of wish that the LRT going south to Century Park might have saved Heritage Mall, but I mean, I'm not sad about what's going on there either. But yeah, I, I, I echo what you say. It was, uh, it was huge. I worked, my first job was working near Nate, and I had to drive to Southgate and then take the train from Southgate or the University to go all the way. So I was really happy when it finally came down to Century Park, but I had already moved out of there. So, and just as a fun fact, my wife's first job was at that uh, Sicilian pasta kitchen in that same block that you guys have. Oh my gosh. Yeah, (laughs) so, yeah, exactly. So I, uh, yeah, we're definitely Southsiders in this house too. But um, yeah, you you mentioned a couple things here that I want to talk about. Uh, One, is it true that you had block parties all throughout COVID to keep the community uh, life going and, and being vibrant in Inglewood? We did. When we first moved in, we realized the only time we were really seeing our neighbors, even though we knew it was a cool area, um, sorry, when we moved back in, because we had to replace our foundation. So my husband and I got married while we were fixing the house and then eventually moved back in and started to sort of relearn who our neighbors were. And with all the infill, we actually like had a bunch of new neighbors. So the only time per year we would see our neighbors was Halloween. And if they, if the people had kids, we would see those people or the people handing out candy, you'd see them across the street and kind of wave. So Halloween is this like weird, beautiful tradition where you actually walk up to people's doors and knock on them. Remember in like the eighties when you used to have to go knock on your friend's door to play. So it was kind of that feeling that hearkening to that bygone era. And so we decided that we'd try to have a block party um, so many years ago. We did like a little bit of crowdfunding because we really wanted a bouncy castle and we had like sponsorship and stuff. And we ended up with this humongous block party. So many people came and not just from our block, like just everywhere. I don't know, word got around. It got picked up by a couple of those community event websites. And we just couldn't believe the turnout and how many people came and seeing like the mix of people that are on a block, like all different ages uh, with kids, without kids, and just all different cultures. It was so cool to see 
really like in one place, all these people that live on our block, because we do have some, they're not all houses, we have some of the two or three story walk ups on our street as well. So that they house a lot of people there. So that kind of just created this community in that you might not know all your neighbors names, but you know what they look like, you can identify kind of maybe some of the vulnerable people on your block, the elderly couple that lives up the way we kind of keep an eye on them, check on them every couple of weeks. And, you know, they watch the street for us when our kids are playing and making sure things are okay during the day. So we started with that. And then we realized that on Halloween, it is a block party. Everybody's just on the block anyway. So uh, the permits at the time, you had to get a signature from every single house. They've kind of changed that a little bit, um, but they had dropped the cost. You used to have to pay, I think it was a hundred bucks to get one. So they dropped that. And we brought two forms around the block to get it for Halloween and for the first First weekend in July. And the Halloween one is amazing because we the kids are safe on the street. They can just roam free, go back and forth, whatever. It's a lot simpler. There's no bouncy castles or anything like that. We just put out fires and hot chocolate. People come from all, again, different streets to our street because they know we're having a little shindig. So you get to learn your neighbors. Everybody's in costume. Kind of, It's very disarming when you're in a costume. I don't know, something about Halloween that people really are open to talking to each other. So we do two a year. And then during COVID, that was kind of the only chance we could really see our neighbors. So we did do definitely a couple of low key ones. We still had like a live band at our last one, (laughs) but we sat really far apart. And that was a great way to, again, just who's going to, who's going to come out of their home and who's going to check in. And it was just lovely to see everyone kind of emerge from their houses. That said, our front yard is a block party pretty much every day. My tagline for Inglewood is Inglewood. We sit on our front porch. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting in your backyard, as much as we spend so much money, like making our yards beautiful, a lot of people focus on their backyard. And I really wish that people would sit on their front porches. Living in Toronto, people don't have backyards in most of central Toronto, like Queen Street area. So your front, your porch is like your little outdoor space and you're right there, like you're on your stoop and then someone's walking a foot in front of you. And I loved seeing people just sitting out, having a drink or whatever, vi- visiting with people walking by. So Inglewood's kind of already like that. People do sit on their front porches and when people walk by, whether they're walking their dog or just passing through the neighborhood, some of our vulnerable community members, you know, walking through, they can't not look at you and say hi, like you're you're, you're right there. Our front yards aren't that big. We have small lots. So we set up a bar in our front yard as well with a heater and made that kind of like an open come as you are space throughout COVID. And it was, it was awesome. Just we'd be out there having a beer or watering the garden and then people would just kind of drift in. And we had this huge hedge, Karagana. Oh, it's so invasive and it's so spooky and spindly. So we, uh, I finally convinced my husband to rip out the Karagana and then it just, it opened it up even more where people didn't have to kind of feel like they were peeking over the, the little hedge. So they, they just wander in and it's lovely. And so again, we've gotten to know even more of our neighbors further out because they're passing through the neighborhood. We have a little free library, a little free pantry uh, right in front of our house. And it's just kind of a little hub on our street. My husband calls it a social networking center. I love that. <laughs> it's like Facebook, but in real life. Oh, I was going to say, it's like a little main street. It is. It, and our our other neighbors are the same way, like across the street. Our neighbor has a little, then once we did that, she put out a little uh, table and chairs and flowers out there. And then has instead of having your visits, you know, when you're, you're having your outdoor visits with people on the front on the front porch instead of the back. Yeah, I was just going to ask, uh, other than, you know, a desire to talk to your neighbors about all their houses, what, uh, where, where was this idea born from? Uh, what was the reason that you wanted to uh, start hosting these? So I grew up in a cul-de-sac when that, those were really popular during like the 70s and 80s. And so you were always kind of facing your neighbors and it was this little village kind of atmosphere. And I definitely like all of our neighbors were very different and like from every, every walk of life. But we we had block parties growing up and all summer long, you know, the kids just crossed around in the uh, back and forth across the cul-de-sac had, you know, street hockey games and that kind of thing. And I loved how the little community was that we had. And I was seeing that once I had kids, it was, it's so different now, I think, to try and meet people when you have kids and then you have to book play dates and they're, you know, kids aren't like running around on the street like they might've been, which is 
good in some ways. So I was just worried about like conveying to my kids what community looked like and knowing your neighbors. Also just for safety, like if something happens, my kids like know they could walk up to any house to go get help, right? So there's like the actual practicality of it. But then also teaching them about looking out for other people on your block and just like open and tolerant and uh, to other you know, vulnerable community members coming through, not being afraid of people because they might look different than you. In our alley, the people that come and pick up our bottles, like they're our community members too. And they're really friendly and nice. And they also keep our alley really safe. But like, it's easy to just not acknowledge those community members. And so I wanted to sort of teach it, convey it to my kids. Also, I'm a really chatty social person. So personally, um, I like to know people and just socialize and bring joy. That's awesome. Two guests ago, we had someone on that was talking about, you know, higher density living and what kind of the optimal number of units in an apartment is to, uh, to get to know all your neighbors and have a good community in there. But we sometimes forget about how isolating these low density neighborhoods are as well. Like you might not know your neighbors if you're just hopping in your car and driving downtown or driving somewhere else and spending all the time in your backyard. So I think that's really cool that you you opened up your front yard. I do want to know what the heck is a free pantry? So a little little free libraries are, if you've seen their, their little box for books, and then a little free pantry is the same thing, but for food. So people bring food, take leave food. Um, so it's meant to reduce food waste. So like when you clear out your pantry in your house, like you've always got that like weird couscous that you bought that you don't know how to cook or, you know, like the sauce that you thought was one thing and whatever. Um, so we stock it with stuff that we know that is needed in the community, we keep an eye on what goes quickest. So we definitely keep lots of quick eat meals and to go type food. So granola bars and things like that. It is almost always empty, but like there's always stuff being put in there. So it's, I've pulled stuff out of there too. I'm not going to (laughs) lie, but it's meant to be kind of a little helping people with food insecurity, but also just making sure that we reduce waste in the community. It's also a little hub for things like, I know one of my neighbors packs up little kits with a bus pass and toque and a snack and a mask right now for people that might not have access to that easily when they're on the go through the neighborhood. So if we have to drop things off, like right now we're doing like a little seed exchange because it's a little seed library in the little free pantry. (laughs) People bring seeds by that they have extra and then you can take them out of there. So it's just like a little drop zone for things too. But yeah, that's been a really nice initiative and people really have a lot of ownership of it. Like it's actually, we got the neighborhood renewal the guys came through and they were so like, you're not supposed to have anything that's off the standard, right? Like, you know, and the free library is literally across the uh, sidewalk from us. So it's, it's, technically not supposed to be there and there's a bench next to it and we put concrete in for the bench like that is you know rogue urban what do you call it rogue urban gorilla fair <laughs> so but we were worried you know they were just gonna trash it or we'd get in trouble or get fined and the people coming through that did the neighborhood renewal treated it like the most precious thing they even poured a beautiful new pad for it like told us where they were moving it. And we're just, it was so lovely to see that, that it was like, it's coveted by our community and it was treated the same way by them. And then like last year we did a beautification for the bike lane we wanted to put in. We have the little separated bike lane now, that little piece of concrete. So we got permission to put flowers on it all along the bike lane. So we wanted like a flower gauntlet for people and everybody just had their own pot. So nothing matched. And you had to water your own pot, but we all watered each other's or whatever. Um, so little things like that, like just on our block, making it good, having more people here makes it better. Can I ask, did you get that flower idea from when you lived in Montreal? Because I went there last summer and <laughs> had flower, different flowers everywhere. And I was like, this has to be a community thing. It was. And actually, yeah, no, none of my ideas are new or original. Nothing is original. You just steal that from people steal ideas that's all you need to do you don't need to invent the wheel but south of us they had there had been people doing it for years just a couple of houses and I was like oh well they did it and it didn't get taken away or anything so we just like rolled it out and we put it on our community page like where it was happening so it actually went up like three blocks there were still planters going out like there was one really intense area but then other people were still putting them out it was really cute and why not make it nice I mean our I know that there are some people that live in Edmonton that do not like the bike lanes and don't think that transit is used and that it's maybe a waste of money but if you actually are ever at like Century Park at 4 30 to 5 30 p.m good luck getting up into the, <laughs> the LRT let alone getting in um it is so heavily used and same thing with the bike lanes like if you're going during the peak hour it's 
you're fending off scooters and bikes and all people running. They are very well used and busy and people embrace them. So it's just like supporting that. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i really excited that this council is like prioritized bike lane expansion because I lived in Mill Woods around the time where they put in bike lanes around there where it was like half put in. It didn't feel safe. Spray paint on the road. Yeah, the paint on the road and then in the industrial area. So like, I don't know what was happening there. Uh, but now I live on a bike lane downtown and it is so well used. Like it's just, it's how you put it in. It's where you put it in. Uh, it's actually talking to the community that's going to use it instead of just like, hey I did a study (laughs) let's go do that yeah and I feel so much safer on like I I don't like to bike anywhere that there's not a bike lane and I'm an adult I bike with my kids we don't bike anywhere that's not a bike lane right so that that does limit where we go but I mean living central we have a lot of places we can go but if you did live slightly out of the center and not have access to a real separated bike lane yeah you wouldn't think about taking your four-year-old on a bike somewhere. Yeah. And, and the connection piece, I think is really interesting. Like you have, you're blessed in Inglewood that you have that, you have the shared use path that goes east, west, which connects kind of to the neighboring communities. And then you have the the separated one that goes all the way south. And I think it connects to the river valley, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's amazing. So actually connecting the bike lanes, because yeah, if going back to Saddleback, they had the, uh, they, they painted on the street, the bike lanes for a long time. And uh, I do dive through a few of those on my route to Saddleback, but I've kind of mastered a route that's off mostly off those. Yeah. I mean, well, that the LRT Eldorado Century Park luckily has a shared use path all the way on one side, I think so. Yeah. Um, but just, just beyond there, you're going through the neighborhood. Yeah. So connecting it is, is a huge, huge element of getting it uh more utilized for sure. Let's go back to something you said earlier. Your uh, neighbors across the street, they've seen density. They've gotten lots of lots of people, lots of vibrancy, which is really exciting. And so you decided to build a garden suite on your lot. What was it just because of that? Or was there other reasons? What's your plans for it? We needed a new garage. And then it's the, well, you're at it, right? That's how it starts. That's how our whole house is always. But yeah, we wanted to build a new garage. And we've been talking about it for a while. Uh, We're going to age in place. Our plan is to stay in this house as long as we can. So we don't plan on trading up or changing. Like I said, my hope. The house came with my husband. So looking at that kind of long term planning for, you know, whether it's maybe uh, aging parents that might need access to housing that's closer to us, because that's always like looking at now, you know, some of my friends are further along in that process and just seeing sort of trying to help aging parents transition through the aging process without just like going from their home to a home because there's so many other options in the interim. Um, so thinking about that, also our own aging, you know, like maybe we'll just live in there one day and rent out our house. I don't know. Uh, so thinking about it that way and then just actually putting our money where our mouth is, which is urban densification, affordable, good affordable housing, and then having a cool neighbor living there for our kids to get to know. So that was the idea. And then we started pursuing it. And at the time, we would have needed four parking stalls on our tiny, narrow lot in order to build it. So we would have had to somehow have a two-car garage with two cars that can park in there and a two-car pad on the back, which would have been insane. And then it wouldn't have worked with the coverage. So we abandoned it and um, just left our old garage as is for like three or four years. And then things started to change with the city. So our contractors that are like... I feel like Smith Stallers, who I think that you guys know, they've been working on our house top to bottom over many years. I think at that point, we were eight years into like the stuff that they do for our house. They'd done our entire exterior, the entire roof, like taking it down to the studs. They'd done a ton of work on our home. So we were pretty uh, into that relationship already. And they had mentioned they were building a garden home and that we might be a good candidate. And I said, well, we'd looked into it and it wouldn't work. And they had found out that then we found out that some of the rules had changed. So we actually took the unit that they had built and uh, with almost no changes because we wanted to make sure that we could build it. That You know, we didn't I'm not an architect, so I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. Take the ideas that are good. (laughs) (laughs) So they got into the process and it was kind of right at COVID. We were kind of like, are we going to build it? Are we not? It's a lot of money. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's a lot of money to dump into an asset that you can't divest of without your divesting of your entire property, right? So that's one of the drawbacks to a garden home. But ultimately, we decided to go for it. And they built us this beautiful home. The process was pretty awesome. It took about a year start to finish with permitting. A lot of it was COVID related sourcing. And then like trades were really busy. It was 
crazy. It still is crazy to build something right now. And some of the costs did go up over time, but we built it and we've actually already rented it out. We had the second person that saw it, took it. So we have an awesome tenant moving in next month, but long-term I would love it to be um, once we've kind of paid it off and we're able to rent it maybe a little bit more below market value. I'd let, I could see, you know, fringe artists staying there, have exchange students. Um, I like the idea of maybe having a little higher turnover and just having like interesting, cool people in the neighborhood that um, would have access to like a great place to live and kind of a bit of a built-in support system with, you know, your landlord is also your neighbor, which could be good or bad, but I think in this situation is good. And then a built-in community to just, you know, land on. So if you were like a, a foreign student, for example, you know, you could just come and live here and have an instant community and family ready to go. Well, congrats on renting it out so quickly. And shout yeah. out to uh, Michael uh, from Stellar's Homes. He is fantastic. He actually took our uh, builder education program too. So Ryan knows him pretty well. He killed it in class. Uh, so uh, we didn't know, you and I, Morgan, didn't know each other beforehand, but I'm glad that Michael was another connection point between us. He built one uh, close to me actually too, and I cycle by there to go to the gym every, uh, during the summer quite a bit. And he was on site, not, no joke, like every single day inspecting stuff. So yeah, it's, yeah, his craftsmanship is good. And there's a free plug for you, Michael. Yes. <laughs> We've actually had a lot of friends that have come by and like, does they want to, everybody's so curious, right? They want to see it and, and see it. And we've had multiple like people that are contractors come by and they're like, this is well, like, I mean, I think it's well built, but I don't know what to look for, but they're like, this is good work. This is very good. So that made me feel good. I think it looks beautiful either way. Yeah. Michael's really known for his uh, good work and attention to detail. So you got him. He got you. Yeah. Let's get into commercial info. I know Ryan, you wanted to get into that. Yeah, definitely. Um, we talked a lot about you and Englewood and your house, but let's talk a little bit about your business and um, kind of the importance that you saw in kind of a local shoe store or a local retailer, just kind of local businesses in general. Like what made you want to start a, a small local business like that? So uh, my parents did start it in 81. My dad happened to be in the shoe business and they saw having a business as a great way to be a steward of the community, um, your steward of your corporation. And maybe they thought it would give them some flexibility <laughs> <laughs> which it doesn't. But anyway, they are, were able to have a really good life for us as well as offer now the second generation, a really fulfilling job and business that we could take to the next level. So they never in a million years thought that we would want to take over the business because like who gets into retail? Um, both my brother and I pursued careers in the arts um, overseas. And then gradually this pull of Edmonton, right? Like it sucks you back in. So we slowly moved back. And um, to after 10 plus years of being away and sort of you can start to appreciate what Edmonton is and is becoming like it's a very exciting city. I love Berlin as a city. And I think that Edmonton has that where it's ever changing. It's not trying to be cool. Like it is just cool. Um, and Berlin is like that. It's a little a little grungy. It's got a lot going on. But I don't know, it just reminds me of that. So Local business, it's one of those things like I do believe that you should support local business. Of course, your dollar spent in a local store stays in the community. That's really important. But you also have to be good. <laughs> we love to throw chains under the bus and you should shop this place instead of that place. But you do have to be good at what you do. People will shop local, but you have to still offer them something that the chains or someone else won't, right? So as much as we say people will just shop local just because it's the nice thing to do, that's not most consumers. So I think what you get when you have a local business is a you have an uber local tailored assortment of products or services. Speaking directly to shoes, the chains that you would see in the mall are buying shoes for all of Canada. So they have to buy the same shoe that's gonna sell in Toronto, that's gonna sell in Vancouver, that's gonna sell in Edmonton. Those places could not be more different. So whether it's fashion or our weather, to live in Edmonton, we need like 17 jackets, like minus five, minus 10, minus 40, plus five. Our market is not, 
we're not like any other planet in the world, especially when it comes to soft goods and fashion. You need so much stuff just to survive here. Like when you have a local store, so for speaking to shoes in this case, we're able to tailor our assortment to what Edmontonians actually need and want. And comes down to taste too, like colors and fashion. Um, Edmontonians are very European in their fashion choices. They're very cultured. They they don't bespoke and mim- minimalist products. I don't think speak as much to the consumers in Edmonton. They like stuff that is fun and colorful and interesting, which is more speaks more to, I think, a European audience. And we are sophisticated and we do travel so yeah if you have a local business all you have to do is listen to your customers that are only in your town and do what they ask and you can achieve success so I think that's what my parents did all along they conveyed that to us and in like a time when retail is supposedly dying and local businesses are are really struggling, we have found that we are thriving. We're doing something right. And I, I can only speak to those things as the reason of why we're still here and we're doing well. I like that you mentioned the uh, the tailored experience here too, because um, I think I read online somewhere that your one of your uh, sites that you selected for one of your stores, I think it's in the West End, that came directly from your customers wanting you to move out to the West End. Is that right? Yeah. So we operated a store in the downtown core for almost 20 years. I really do believe, you know, in the downtown core, I live here. We, we had a successful business there. We did do well. And I, I'm very grateful for my time there. But as we saw some of the decisions that were being made at Council and things not changing in the direction that we were hoping it would. Things like, you know, legislation or bylaws that would encourage street level retail and restaurants as opposed to services like dental offices and pharmacies. If you walk down Jasper Ave, that's 90% of what you're going to see, which kills the cityscape. It, what We weren't moving there yet. And if you go to cities like Vancouver or Toronto, they have bylaws that prevent services from opening up at the ground level to encourage a vibrant streetscape. So those types of things weren't happening. And as the downtown was expanding, it wasn't going in a direction that was working well for our business. So we We're thinking about moving, thinking about moving, but we had a successful, beautiful store. I loved that store on Jasper Ave. We had amazing customers there. Then COVID happened and we always wondered how much of our business were commuters that were working downtown and how much of them lived downtown. We found out during COVID when everybody went, stayed home, that 20% of our customers lived downtown and they still supported us. God bless them. I love them. But 80% of our business evaporated. And went online and some people to the Saddleback store. So we had to make a quick decision and fast. So we reach out, reached out to our customers to sort of ask it, like, what should we do? We were we were even looking at closing the store at one point. Um, but it's really hard to get out of the shoe business because <laughs> you own so much inventory. It's really difficult to close locations. So we were thinking maybe a move. And they told us that's where they wanted us. West End, it was central for people from St. Albert, Stony Plains, Bruce Grove. And then the West End is a big residential area. And the success of the Saddleback store is that we're near where people live. We're kind of that terminus on the way home from work. A lot of people, you know, leave work early, pop in. And being in a shopping area um, that is still what I would describe as like a main street type area. So it's not downtown. It's not central, but it still has a very good assortment of retail and services and businesses and a lot of local businesses in the West End. I didn't even know till we actually started building the store, how much was out there and people started reaching out to us. So we found this location, kind of an odd location next to Pace Setter Ski, who's been open for since 91 there. And Astro's Greek restaurant was the original tenant in that building. And we took a leap with an amazing landlord, built a really quick store and the customers just came. Like we're already expanding the store um, next door, taking over. And it's just been really overwhelming. Just I can't believe how, you know, that decision, which at the time, you know, it seemed like a good decision, but we were so scared of moving so far away and building a new store in a pandemic. And it's just been a deluge of support and we're, it's been awesome. So, yeah, that's huge. And I think, uh, I I'm glad you kind of brought it up because your, your Saddleback location is in this tiny little strip mall, kind of in the middle of a residential area. And now there's a train kind of nearby and then yours in the West end. It's like part of this kind of really large power center, but again, you're on the fringe of it in a small little mm-hmm. store. Was that important or did you look at places like West Edmonton Mall and South Common as well. So what it is, if you look at a lot of independent businesses, you're not going to find them in the malls and it simply comes down to rent. 
a lot of them are working on a wholesale model, not a landed cost model. So their margins don't have enough money to pay those rents. So that's why you're seeing a lot of direct to consumer brands where the brand has their own store. Um, a lot of really successful businesses are in off the beaten path locations because it's affordable rent. And if you're good enough, people will come to you. So when we moved out of the mall, we stayed till like almost the closing day. Uh, my parents moved into this delocation, you know, off of, which it was at the time. And I think Sicilian Pasta Kitchen was just opening at that point. But the rent was so much lower than being in the mall that my parents were able to put all of that money into advertising and into product. So when you're not worried about paying your rent, you can just buy more product and turn it. And that's ultimately what the consumer wants. And they're willing to go a little bit out of the way for it. So some of these bylaws I was talking about, um, which would, especially on the street level, which would encourage only retail or restaurants on the main level, the walkable level, would force the landlords to charge cheaper rents because they wouldn't be able to fill those spaces. But when you can get rent from a dentist or a pharmacy that they have a very different profit margin, you're going to wait for that. You're going to leave it empty. That's the issue with our city right now is that it's not encouraging that. Then all these little areas, like that little plaza where Saddleback Road is, is a good little plaza. It's got great businesses in it because they've all come together where the rent is affordable. And that's a little main street. And it's it's a little main area in, in Saddleback Road. If you look at 124th Street, I think they're doing the same thing. It's a main street. 34th Ave, like where you've got um, right between 99th and 91st, those are like older plazas there. They have the most incredible restaurants and businesses is in there like it's just amazing like you go there you can get food from anywhere in the world to cook or to eat their really interesting clothing stores um so, so that's a main street but it's not downtown edmonton it's not jasper ave so we think it's not a success but it is so our city is so spread out and so big that i think we should be focusing on successful main street areas and encouraging growth there where people can come to their little core in their neighborhood as opposed to trying to feel so bad about our downtown core not being what it is in Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And, and you kind of started talking about it, the the supports that are necessary. Um, maybe can you go into a little bit more detail? I think you talked about um, either restricting the types of uses that are on the main floor um, to more active frontage or active streetscape type uses. Yeah. Um, is there any kind of incentives that we should be looking at for, for businesses or what, what other kind of supports are kind of necessary to get our businesses and retail businesses specifically going? I mean, parking, 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 parking. I hate to say it, but if I had to hear one more parking complaint at our Jasper Ave store, that was my reason for moving. I couldn't take it anymore, the the parking complaints, because we didn't offer parking. Um, and people legit, like it's minus 40. They don't want to walk. So integrating good parking options that are affordable with these more central locations is still essential. Like I know we talk so much about parking at Edmonton, but it is, they don't have to be free. Like you pay for parking everywhere in the world. We just need to get over that in Edmonton. You pay for parking. It's a thing. Um, but things like not wrapping the windows, it should be illegal to wrap windows at the street level because if you can't wrap your windows, you're not going to have a dentist there, right? So that right away <laughs> prevents that. But you see a pharmacy open and the first thing they do is they wrap all the windows. So it's a half a block that is dead. No no vibrancy to it. Also dangerous for um, actual for security and things like that. Having um, taxation or fees that would have to be paid for vacancy because a lot of property in Edmonton is owned by debt. There's not actually an owner because any owner that would own a building would try and lease it and and reduce the rent until they leased it. But when your building is owned by the bank to such a big degree, the bank is happy to just sit on it. But if there was taxation, higher taxation or fees you had to pay for vacancy, even the banks would have to start looking at what they could lease it for. Yeah, and I think just mixed mixed services, right? Like, you know, you can't just have quick serve restaurants. I think that, you know, you need some soft goods. You also need, you know, to have restaurants that you can sit down in. So, you know, a, like more tailoring of the market. And again, I, if you look at the downtown LRT, they tried to do it and lease it out to some businesses. There's there's bays all throughout our stations that could be beautiful shopping malls, which again is what you see. The entire shopping system of Toronto and Montreal is in the metro system. When you go to Europe, the, the shopping malls are 
the train stations, right? They're already there. It already exists. But again, like, why can't we get that going? And to me, it's like dollar a month rent for the first year. You know, let businesses try it out with with no risk and see if it can be workable. Because if you fill that with people, your safety issues aren't as much of a problem and you have a vibrant downtown core. Because again, it's indoor. There is the reality of like walking down a street at minus 40 doesn't always, doesn't work year round. So. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't there used to be like a huge amount of stores underneath um, either the Corona station or the Central Station downtown? My mom always talks about like that's where they used to go shopping. They were there. I don't know how full ever full it was, but I have I know that there's bays there. So and they did open up like there was a bakery down there, you know, that was there for a while. And then they had to close and a lot of it was the safety issues and lack of support for these issues and being the only one down there, right? So yeah, I think that lack of support is important for us to kind of put a spotlight on because I'm pretty sure there is a bylaw. I'll have to fact check it at the end about wrapping windows. I don't think you're allowed to have 60%. 60% is uh, the rule, I think, if I remember yeah. correctly. But again, okay. we'll fact check that. Enforcement of bylaws. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure those uh, businesses that were underground in Edmonton needed a bit more enforcement, needed a bit more support and love. A lot of downtown needs that. Uh, and a lot of other areas need it too. Our main streets, I think, are things that we need to focus on over the next 10 years to make them really successful. Talking about main streets, there are digital main streets. That's a term being popped up uh, over and over again online. Uh, you talked about your third store being online. How is that going? So it's going great. We've been operating it for seven years, I think. My brother's going to fact check that. <laughs> so we opened it initially. I have to say, like, I was still the old school. Like, we don't need a website. It just needs to have our address and hours on it. People will come to the store. It's not worth the money and the effort. My brother was definitely, we have to have a website. And thank God he pushed through because we would have been left in the dust if we didn't have the website we do today. We're on our second second website, I guess. Like we've built two stores. We've built our first website and our second one. It, it does operate as its own location. You do have some specific consumers, of course, people out of town and that kind of thing. But people have to see stuff before they go into a location now. It's just, it's it's standard. They want to know what you have. They want to know what locations it's at. They want to know it's going to be there in their size, especially with something like shoes where, you know, you're not just going to be able to get the small instead of the medium because it fits big, right? Like you, you're going to need your size. Plus they all fit different. So luckily we've been saved a little bit from a lot of the disruption of e-commerce because shoes are so important to be fitted in store. Um, so it's really enhanced our store experience. But our ability to communicate with our customers and advertise directly to them and show them what we have has it's just gone through the roof. So a lot of the money we would have spent on buying an ad in the newspaper or radio advertising or online display advertising, we just actually put into making our website better and then getting people to go to the website, right? So we used to see it as an advertising expense in the beginning, but now it does have like, we have a warehouse space where we warehouse inventory just for the website and it we have to buy specifically to it. That said, without the brick and mortar, I don't think a website is very relevant for an independent, um, aside from, you know, if you're a maker, maybe doing your own custom things. But for something like what we do, we're still a large multi-brand retailer. So we are going up against a lot of the big branded retailers out there. Um, so if you don't have a store that people can go in when there's a problem with your purchase, it doesn't work. And there's been lots of online retailers, especially in shoes that have tried to do that, and none of them have been successful. So here we are. Yeah, I don't really see it as a either or option. I think it's they complement each other to make each of them, yeah. to make each side of the business stronger. But you do have to spend money on it. The, initially, it was like, oh, well, you're just going to build the website and then you leave it and you never have to pay for it again. You're not paying rent. You don't need to have employees for it or stock for it. But that is not true. I mean, we spend the amount we spend on uh, building a website is almost the same as building a small store um, and maintaining it month to month because there's constantly things happening, whether it's fraud prevention or trying to get uh, the customer experience better, especially during COVID. We really got to test. We went from it. It was this tiny version of our business to like it, we did 40% of our business during the closure online so we could see what it could do and what it couldn't do. So it gave us a lot of ideas going forward and a ton of feedback from the customers. So the next version of the website is like, how can we bring the store experience to you online? And that's just 
taken it to the next level now where it, it just has regular business coming in now. Um, so we started sourcing our own products a few years ago because of the shortages in the world. Even before COVID, there were a lot of supply chain issues, again, with globalization Brands are trying to make the same shoe that sells in Toronto, that's going to sell in Hong Kong, that's going to sell in New York. That is not the shoe for Edmonton, luckily. <laughs> so we started to seek out our own shoes and from all over the world. Now we source some brands that we import ourselves that you can't get anywhere else in Canada. And then we also develop and design our own line of footwear under the Kunitz Shoes label. So without the online store, we wouldn't be able to showcase that across Canada and people wouldn't even know that they're looking for it because they've never he seen it or heard of it. So we actually do quite well with those products where it's like people have never seen it before or heard of it and they like to try something new. So people are looking for something they that's sold out in their market, like, you know, the big brands are, or they're looking for something really different. So that those are the two most successful categories. <laughs> that's really exciting. Uh, so I just want to to wrap a little bit by talking about how you've built a community in your residential neighborhood and you've built this beautiful community in your business um, and to build communities in, in Edmonton, not only just in Edmonton, other cities as well, you need people and you need to, to bring the people together and let them try new things. Let them do the dollar rent, put the, the pantry outside, put a bench outside, like let's see how it, how it happens. I think we can often be very risk adverse Oh no, what what will happen to the bench? Let's just see. Let's <laughs> It will get stolen. Ours has been stolen twice. That's what will happen. That's the worst thing that will happen and then it happens and then you build a new bench. Like Yeah, and I'm sure the people in your neighborhood are excited to build a new bench and put it back out there. The last thing we do is talk about a call to action. Do you have a call to action for our listeners? So the call to action for me is know your neighbors, focus on your block. If everybody took the time to know who's on their block, what their block has to offer, and watching out for everyone, building community on your block, you don't necessarily have to think bigger than that. You can accomplish so much with your city block or cul-de-sac, depending on where you live. So it, if everybody did that, we would have an amazing, vibrant city. And I, I feel the same way commercially. Focus on your little main street zone. Make that good. And it will work. I think if we try to think too big, sometimes it can be too overwhelming. I 100% believe in that. My family is, as you know, Morgan has a local business as well. Um, I think local businesses are incredibly important. And Ryan knows my favorite fact about Edmonton is it's built up of a significant majority of small local businesses. And I think it makes us a little bit gritty, a little bit edgy, very willing to help each other, very willing to try new things. Uh, and we just need to allow those people to try new things and to, to bring people together. So thank you so much for spending your morning with us. I know how incredibly busy local business owners are. So thank you so much for giving so much of your time today. Uh, and have a wonderful rest of your day. And to all those listening, go check out Morgan's store. It is beautiful. It is gorgeous. And she has some very comfortable shoes. Uh, before her and I knew each other through this venue, I have bought shoes there uh, and walked around and my feet were just loving it. <laughs> well, was my conversation with Morgan amazing? Oh my gosh, I don't think we've had a more well-prepared guest and lots of our guests have been prepared, but she was unbelievable. Yeah, uh, we talked about it afterwards, but she seems very refined. She obviously is very good and confident at uh, talking to people. Part of that is probably her theater background, but it also makes her a really good neighbor. I, you can tell that uh, she really likes doing that that kind of neighborly stuff and is good at talking to people. But yeah, she sent all of her information that we request of all of our guests like what a week in advance of our recording so we had like bios and headshots and everything that we needed like in advance whereas you know some guests that we're not going to name just uh we have to end up chasing down but yeah she was very prepared yeah and even um because a lot of our guests have a little bit more technical experience so they can riff a little bit more uh we gave morgan a heads up on some of the things that we wanted to ask her about and she like did her research and came prepared like a lot of the small business what can the city do to help she was she took it very seriously and I really appreciated that about her. Yeah, no kidding. She, You could see her, um, I know this is a podcast, but we do it uh, virtually and you could see her writing notes while we were talking and asking her questions, which I thought was really impressive. So yeah, she was very impressive. She lived up to the hype. Yeah, and one of the things I really liked about her 
Um, she also has a passion for like multimodal transportation. So she talked about how she invests a lot in bikes. Uh, I have invested a lot in bikes yet, live downtown, work downtown, do mostly walking. But I love buses and LRT and the LRT. And so it's really cool to hear that like she's not like in this urban planning world, but she was like, I'm not coming back <laughs> until we have another LRT. Um, and in this episode, we talked, uh, I think we said that it was in 2009, it went to Century Park and actually went to Century Park in 2010. Okay. Yeah. So we missed it by a year, but that's, yeah, <laughs> nah, fair enough. We gave us an extra year of credit. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Exactly. It was probably planned in 2009, probably was supposed to open in 2009, but uh, didn't make it till 2010, that kind yeah, of thing. It's not anything like our South Line right now. That's totally on time. So <laughs> Yeah, I'll get to the airport. I'll be able to go to the airport, what, in a couple of years on a train? For sure. But the cool thing about the LRT, um, and I know it's a little different right now, but you've experienced it more recently than I have. I remember when I was in university and uh, after university, it was packed every day that I took it. Like in the rush hour times where the roads would be busy too, the LRT is super busy. Like there was times where we, I'd get on at, uh, at Southgate and I'd get to uh, McKernan and people literally couldn't get on because it was so packed. There was not even room to squish up against people. Yeah, I think it's very time specific. So like you said, the rush hour times or after a sporting event, that kind of thing. It's like there's definitely some times where you see some empty trains go by. But yeah, it's I've been riding the train now to the university for the last week. I, this would be the only week, I guess. And um, it's almost back to normal. I, I don't ride at the exact rush hour point. I get on around uh, nine o'clock, but it is packed. We're back. We're back, baby. <laughs> oh, that's awesome to hear. Another thing that she talked about that was really great was this free pantry idea, which is amazing. Like I'm married to someone who views our fridge as less not waste and eat leftovers in, before they expire. And I use our fridge more as an experiment to try new things all the time. And I would love it if I, <laughs> I had a space to um, like to get some of my neighbors leftovers and try new recipes out uh, as well as share when I over make things uh, and like give there's there was a cooking show that uh, that did that right like there was a box of random ingredients that the chefs had to uh, integrate into a meal I think so I've I believe I've seen that. They had like really outrageous ingredients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're going to have to fact check the fact check here now. But for sure, I mean, that that's kind of where this goes, right? The free pantry. You can just go out there and say whatever's in here, whether it's a can of cranberries or, you know, whatever leftovers Mariah is experimenting with. Um, <laughs> incorporate that into your new into your new uh, meal. I absolutely love the idea. There's um, there's little libraries all over the place. And um, I've seen a few seed libraries, which is pretty cool too. But yeah, the free pantry, that's kind of the first one I've heard of. Have you seen one before? Or? No, I've only ever seen uh, like books for like trade or swap or like have people give away, which is great. But I've never seen the seed one. I've never seen the food one. I know you're into your backyard and gardening, so that's cool. I don't want to participate in your feed one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do love gardening, and that is cool. Yeah, moving on. Um, so we talked about garden suites because she built one on the in the back of her heritage home there, um, and we mentioned she mentioned something that she doesn't think that you can condo or strata or title the garden suite. So I actually looked into it. And I was actually kind of surprised to find out that the city of Edmonton actually had a pilot program called the Flagship Lot Pilot Program that looked at three lots. They all had to be rezoned to DC2, and then they were supposed to be subdivided out to allow the garden suite to be on a separate title and it could be sold because some people build the garden suite and they don't really want to be landlords, um, but they still want to you know, reap some benefits off of that financially so they can actually sell that lot. Now, I went through and I watched the council meeting from 2018. September 5th, 2018 is when it got approved. Uh, council unanimously approved two of the projects. So there was one in Alberta Ave and one in Queen Mary Park. And there was a third one in Grosvenor, which didn't make it. And I don't know why. Um, but one of our current counselors, Ashley Salvador, she spoke in favor of this. Um, so I went and looked at what the situation is now. Both of them seem to have 
both the ones that got approved in Alberta Ave and Queen Mary Park seem to have garden suites. Uh, they are zoned DC2, but they never got subdivided. So I'm not sure, I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, maybe we'll have Ashley on the show at some point, or maybe we should have someone on the show that actually knows what happened there, but I'm not really sure why they never got subdivided. Now, one interesting thing from that council meeting is that the city administration talked about uh, first of all, this came out of the infill design competition in 2016. So this was one of the recommendations that was made. They followed through, made the pilot program, and then admin recommended that this actually gets implemented through zoning bylaw renewal. So I really am hopeful that we can see some of this come because um, I looked around Canada. There's not a single municipality that I could find that allows for condoing or titling or subdividing a garden suite from your main property. Um and fun fact, Toronto actually just allowed garden suites everywhere in January of this year, which seems crazy to me, right? Like they, they allowed lane suites before, but only when there was a lane. Now you can actually have a garden suite. So Edmonton did something that Toronto hasn't done yet. So pretty cool. I did. Did I tell you that a student from Ryerson reached out to IDEA uh, to get our feedback on how to move infill forward? Uh, and how to get small scale infill and missing middle <laughs> happening. So yeah, Edmonton is seen as a leader in Canada. So hats off to our city uh, and congratulations to Toronto for <laughs> allowing garden suites. Yeah, hopefully you can uh, help move some change further ahead with that, uh, that student's work in Ryerson for sure. One thing that I mentioned in the episode that I still don't have confirmation on because my mom doesn't want to call me back. Mom, call me back. Anyways, uh, my mom told me that there used to be commercial retail bays underneath the LRT or underneath uh, underground in the LRT stations. I think she said a church, not a Churchill, sorry, at um, Central and at Corona and maybe at Bay as well. There was underground um, retail that they would go shopping at. I know at Central, they've tried a few uh, different businesses that haven't made it there. But um, yeah, I wish I had more to tell you on that. Did you manage to find anything on that front? So um, once upon a time, I worked for the Downtown Business Association for a week. (laughs) They hired me and I got to do in training a tour of all the downtown pedways. And there was a bunch of businesses there at that time. So that's, oh my gosh, that was nine years ago that I did that. My clock it as the year that I was a nanny for my twin cousins uh, that are beautiful and nine now. So that's crazy. Um, (laughs) But since then, I do know it's been really hard to keep businesses down there because there's just not enough traffic down there. And it's really hard uh, to get people to know that you exist if they don't take the LRT. So I think if we did a better job of, um, A, running our buses and uh, trains more frequently so people could rely on them so we get more businesses to those communities, that would be great. And then, yeah, do a great job of helping say that there's actually businesses down there um, and have a strategy to help. But I know it's been really tough, especially through the pandemic. Yeah. Have you ever been to to London in England? Yeah. Okay. Um, you ever take the trains there? Because um, I remember I was there the last time I was there on some of the train stations, they have like mini convenience stores. And there was like this, it was like a pop up shop. And it was no bigger than like a hot dog cart or whatever. But dude in there had everything from like gum chips, he was making like paninis or something and then coffee. And it was just this little kiosk. And I mean, I talked to him and I was really excited about his coffee and whatever. And he did say that it was difficult to make work because I said in Canada, like this would never happen. And it was like in a suburban context in London, too. So it was like, do you get enough people to support your business? And he said, yeah, but like, you know, 6 a.m. and the 6 a.m. and then 530 p.m. are my busy times. The rest of the time I sit here and talk to people like you. So um, <laughs> it can it can actually happen. And um, it would be interesting to see kind of pop up. I would love to jump off a train for like a Wetzel's pretzel or something at a stop and then jump back on and keep going. Yeah. One of the cool things actually about Toronto is they have a really robust underground shopping district around their downtown. It's like insanely busy. And I went there last summer and got to see it in action. And yeah, even when it was like pandemic-y, it was very busy. So (laughs) uh, hats off to Toronto making it work, but clearly you need the density for it. So hopefully we get 
more density along our LRT lines. Yeah, I think we're heading that way. Um, and then the last thing that we um, kind of talked about that I want to bring up is the wrapping of windows and the glazing. So um, Morgan made some good points about, you know, dentists and doctors and pharmacies, um, you know, don't put don't have clear glass going in, you know, patient privacy and all that being being said, but it creates kind of a, um, a pedestrian environment on the outside that isn't as inviting as it's supposed to be. So um, I did go and look through the zoning bill a little bit to get the uh, the numbers here. So anything that's on uh, within the main street overlay, so um, that's a lot of the main streets that we're talking about, it requires a minimum of 70% glazing. And then signage, uh, there's a maximum of 10% of the windows that can be covered in signage. Um, I don't know about you, but are we hitting 70% on every single uh, you know pedestrian storefront window or am I not seeing properly there? No, I don't think that, like, I think we have a glazing problem and like a, <laughs> a signage problem. I know there is a pharmacy close to me uh, of a very large business owner, <laughs> a big Canadian company, uh, and it sterilizes the block. They just have these huge posters of these people that are so excited about their pills. It's very weird. <laughs> Never been that excited to take a vitamin in my life. Uh, <laughs> But it feels super creepy and unsafe when it starts to get dark outside. So, um, yeah, I would love it if we focused on having businesses that had people in the windows and entrances to things that had people in it. I just I want more people. Yeah, more people, more density. Yeah, absolutely. And we've been talking about this since like the 60s when Jane Jacobs was talking about this exact thing. But I think there's also like competing interests. Like Morgan brings up the doctors, the pharmacies and the dentists that like need to kind of shade what's going on inside or, or kind of uh, obscure that view. So maybe like she says, offices and that type of thing are not really... Um, the best thing to put in the main floor. Also interesting, I, I bring up cannabis stores because um, they're required to, you know, not have glazing. Um, that's a rule that's probably going to change at some point. I remember being in Victoria, actually, and this was before cannabis was legal. Uh, Victoria don't care. They had cannabis stores that were existing there and you walked in and you signed, um, you signed up for like a medical card, basically, like on the spot and then got to go through everything. But it was a storefront in their downtown that just had like clear glass and there was like people and dogs and kids all walking through there and it seemed to be fine so i see that kind of changing in the future but the office point is kind of interesting where do you see that going if anywhere like how can we even require doctor's offices that are on the main floor to not you know shade their windows um i think there's a few things that we can take into consideration with that so uh you want to make sure that the people who are visiting there have privacy uh, for medical reasons, uh, <laughs> but you know, their feet and uh, the top, like what, 25% don't need to be glazed. Uh, so that's still a significant portion that can be like illuminated as people go by. And then if we create incentives for all different types of businesses to be in those bays uh, and not just medical professionals, uh, that can be really helpful as well as like if you're maybe it's your lobby area or a joint lobby area, then it doesn't need to have the glazing. So you work with the different businesses to make it make it more people friendly. So well, I think that's all that we had to fact check. We uh, we did pretty good. And like we said, Morgan was very prepared. So there's not much that uh, that she said in there that we needed to double check. So yeah, this was this is a really good episode. I'm happy that we had a community member. Uh, do we have any more planned for the future? Uh, we do. So um, Idea ran this as kind of a pilot. You know how planners, we love our pilots. Oh, yeah. Um, so we did the first 10 episodes. So thank you, Morgan, for being our 10th guest on In Development. Uh, and we just got approval to do our season two, which maybe we should come up with a sna snappy name for season two. Um, so that will be coming out real soon. So stay tuned. Uh, Ryan, you just got to stick around with me more. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I, I mean, I didn't even know that this is the season finale technically then. Oh my goodness. I feel like we should have had more, uh, <laughs> you know, fireworks and, uh, and that kind of stuff, but at least we had a good guest. So that's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah more hype around it. Um, before we say goodbye, I'm going to give two plugs. One, if uh, you're a member of IDEA, thanks so much for supporting the organization that brings you in development. If you're not, hit me up. I am available to help you with your membership needs. 
And two, I want to give a shout out to Kim. Uh, she is a listener of ours and she talked about how wonderful the episode we had with Chelsea was. She really liked it. And so, yeah, thanks so much for listening, Kim. That's awesome. Yeah, we like that episode too. So yes, um, thanks, Kim. And uh, yeah, Mariah, go have yourself a uh, good day, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I'll see you in season two. Oh God, that was awful. Yeah, see you in season <laughs> two. Bye.